That's that's the end of the end of history moment within the critique of work politics. And it is, I think, a response to the fact that especially post 2008, there is a recognition that there is an opening for new left wing thinking. That and that left wing thinking has to be about the economy. Mm-hmm. It has to be in, and that the economy isn't just a question about kind of growth and jobs. Yeah. Uh, and I was myself a kind of not a fully automated luxury communist, but I couldn't see anything particularly wrong with the post-work view. I thought, yeah. yeah, this is what the left is for. And it always has been because, you know, horrible industrial jobs were also shitty jobs too. everyone welcome back to bunga cast the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history it's friday the 21st of october i'm alex hohili here in sao paulo joined as usual by philip cunliffe in canterbury england hello actually i am not in canterbury today i am broadcasting from london wow from from ucl in fact one a decaying world capital in uh in the throes of political chaos as is george horror indeed yeah, but I'm not in. Uh, I'm not in the imperialist centre of UCL. Um, I'm in Free Walthamstow. You can see a big uh, mural. You're now entering Free Walthamstow as you. The People's um, Republic of Walthamstow. That sounds nice. fucking dreadful. I'm in. I'm in the northeast. Well, one um, thing about I know about Walthamstow is that there was always, there was this Twitter account discarded mattresses of Walthamstow, which just um, <laughs> took photos of discarded mattresses around the borough. <laughs> uh, um, George probably left a few of those. I had no comment. I didn't even know about this uh, account. It sounds um, missed out. Missed yeah, out you that. did. You did. I think you missed the moment. And uh, our guest today, uh, once again, uh, Alex Gurovich, uh, who uh, is associate professor of political science at Brown University. I'm sure you'll know him if you're regular listeners to the podcast. How's it going, Alex? And where are you calling us from? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm uh, I'm here in the actual People's Republic of Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are, we are in fact, the Commonwealth out here. I'm, this is a city in a Commonwealth, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, no less. Uh, it's not we have no mattresses on our streets, though. <laughs> we have, you know, things that college students leave, like Xbox consoles and whatever. Wealthy college students, I'm guessing. Exactly. Lots yeah. of wealthy college students, exactly, yeah. leaving Xbox consoles and last year's, you know, Samsung Galaxy or something. Well, I guess the, the, the association of mattresses with uh, university towns would be something entirely different. That would be the kind of carrying yes. your mattress through the, through it's the true. campus. Actually, I say that, but I'm wrong. There are there are a lot of futons on the street corners <laughs> come May. One, one finds a lot of futons out there on the street, uh, I have to say. Anyone wants to scavenge, uh, that's where you need to go, I guess. <clears throat> um, so anyway, today we are uh, here to discuss Alex's article in the latest edition of Catalyst, the summer 22 edition, post-work socialism. And uh, just to set this out, the article starts from the notion that post-work socialism claims to emancipate us from the need to work by removing economic compulsion and cultural pressure, which all sounds pretty nice. Um, 
just to, to tell listeners where to go if you want to hear a little bit more about this sort of general area, we've discussed post-work thought before, often in reference to universal basic income or UBI. So listeners can check out our discussion with Aaron Bastani on his uh, fully automated luxury communism, which came out back in May 2019. That's episode 72. Um, episodes which we've done with Anton Yeager, such as episode 88. Uh, and listeners might also want to check out an episode we've done on automation with Aaron Beninov, uh, someone who actually Alex cites quite a bit in the article and mm-hmm. might come on to talking about the relationship between um, Alex's proposal, Alex's critique, and uh, what Aaron discusses in terms of, uh, in relation to automation. Uh, that's episode 149, but you don't need to memorize all these numbers. They're all linked in the show notes below. Uh, so, I mean, Alex's main claim, and I'm just saying this to set this up, but uh, Alex will have plenty of time to elaborate on this, is that post-work utopias all presuppose the very labor they claim to free us from. Okay, so Alex, before we actually get into the details of your critique and the argument that you advance, I think it's probably worth setting out who are post-work socialists, how do they distinguish themselves from advocates of universal basic income, which themselves can be divided into left and right-wing versions. So can you maybe paint us a picture of who the, what the different camps are around here? Yeah, it's a good question. So I post-work socialists, really it's kind of post-work socialism. It's a tendency of thinking that isn't kind of reducible just to a few important people, although I'm happy to, to name who they are. But it's also a kind of pattern of thought that you see in left-wing journalism, left-wing commentary, um, where the idea is the free society is a society in which nobody's forced to work and in which um, not only nobody's kind of forced to work by economic need, but where there's no social pressure to work, no special social value put on working or on doing one's share or contributing one's abilities. It's a society of free time, leisure, and, and play. Um, at its most distinctive, that's what it sounds like. I think the, and they will sometimes run their genealogy all the way back to Paul Lafargue, who was Marx's son-in-law and wrote a famous pamphlet called The Right to Be Lazy. Um, and then trace their ideas forward. Sometimes they'll mention Bertrand Russell and In Praise of Idleness, famous essay he wrote, um, Keynes's letter, you know, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, um, James Boggs and the stuff he wrote on um, in, in, uh, about automation and the retreat from work, the kind of, he's, in a way, I think he's one of the most important because he sets off the post-war kind of conversation about um, the post-war growth being linked to increasing productivity and therefore automation and therefore a retreat from the classic workerist's goal of controlling production. And that may be the only real possibility. He's actually, I think, much more complex and equivocal than this, but he's sometimes appealed to. And then they draw this sort of argument up through Mario Tronti and the operaistas and um, Italy. And you can kind of keep going in that genealogy. And that's the sort of retrospective history that's sometimes written. Um, Andre Gortz, also important figure. Um, And in a way, his stuff, like The Farewell to the Working Class and some of the other books he wrote really is, I think, a a founding place for the modern post-work movement, because it's also linked to a rejection of the working class as the agent of social transformation. And that's where it's made most vividly and clearly in Andre Gortz and not accidentally a pattern of thought that really gets going in the 
late 60s, early 70s, um, with after kind of worker militancy peaks. But in the modern form, I'd say the most important book, and then it also traces is that, you know, it kind of has a twin genealogy back to the wages against housework crowd, Sylvia Federici in particular, where again, the idea is to kind of abolish forms of necessary work like domestic labor. And that was the only way really to emancipate women. But the modern group of people who I name include, I think the most important book might be Kathy Weeks's book, The Problem with Work. Um, and I know that book was really the first to try and synthesize these different lines of thought into an ideal of that was explicitly a left-wing vision against work and where the basic idea was to come up with demands that were sort of non-reformist reforms um, in the sense of being policies that would kind of point in the direction of a future that you could demand now, even though you kind of know nobody will ever really implement them in your in the form that you're arguing for them. And so she kind of argues for things like the basic income, not just that it would reduce poverty or, you know, decommodify labor here and now, but that it'd be part of a future in which nobody's forced to work and that it's twinned with, this is the kind of really important step, that it's twinned with a critique of the work ethic. So it's not just that everybody would end up with this income that they don't have to work for, but also that it'd be twinned with a thoroughgoing cultural critique of the work ethic. And after that, a bunch of people start kind of making versions of this argument. Peter Fraze, a former Jacobin editor, maybe he's still a Jacobin editor. Cernicek and Williams in the UK, they're um, inventing the future is a really important one in particular. because very influential in in the British context as well. And because they also add an argument about uh, automation. So it also... Sort of, there's the 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 companion argument is universal basic income plus automation and the critique of the work ethic. So those are the people. I mean, I know that Kathy Weeks is read in a lot of reading groups and Jacobin and stuff like that. So she is sort of maybe for the American audience what Cernicek and Williams are for the UK, except they have acknowledged their debt to Weeks. Um, and then there's a number of others who make similar neighboring kinds of arguments. So could you perhaps also maybe tell us a bit more about the main political points? that these advocates of post-work socialism tend to make in building their case. So, you know, kind of what's the scaff, before we get into the detail of like what you see as wrong with UBI, what is the kind of the political scaffolding? And I know, I mean, and you mentioned this, but it would also, I mean, given the fact that we've had um, Aaron Bastani on, there is a strong overlap with the fully automated luxury communism kind of uh, strain of thinking as well. So, yeah, maybe tell us a bit more about that. So, I mean, the the interesting thing about post-work is that it really found its legs in the end of history. (laughs) It is a left-wing politics for the end of history, Mm -hmm. and it is presented as a way of kind of rehabilitating left-wing emancipatory political... Uh, So, hold on. So, why why isn't it... I mean, so I would have said it's kind of a politics at the end of the end of history rather than the end of history. Uh-huh. Because it seems to me to come, you know, kind of Cernicek yep. and Williams, at least in the British context, seem to me to yep. come in the wake of the 2008 crash. Right. And these were certainly, you know, these kinds of debates um, where the left kind of right. um, embraced automation. Those were yep. far from familiar to me, kind of, um, yep. you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, right. where right. it seemed the left was much more attached to kind of small developmental 
projects in you know building wells yep. in Africa as a kind of stereotypical image of what they wanted. And then they flipped suddenly to kind of an almost kind of Promethean embrace of technology that was associated mm -hmm. with um that was associated with uh Fal hashtag Falk and all that. So why why did you say end of history rather than end of end of history? So it's a good question. And so here's how I put it is I think that um the most interesting form that post work socialism took was the Cernicek, is the Cernicek and Williams one, in part precisely because of its futurism and its um kind of embrace of technology. But that is, I think, a late breaking development in post-work politics. So I think it really is born with the defeat of the working class. And so the critique of work as the kind of moral and ideological foundation of um of left-wing theory and politics is um, something that really gets its legs in the new left, during the new left. Um, it's there in value form theory and Postone, it's there at Boggs, it's there in Mario Tronti, it's it's it Andre Gortz. Gortz is the most specific in that it's associated with the critique of of um, you know, tradition what they what is often called traditional left-wing politics, which isn't just sort of the union movement, but also conventional socialist parties and communist parties who are seen to have overvalorized work or committed themselves to some kind of work ethic or productivism. And so any attempt to celebrate work as something that could be meaningful gets in one way or another put together in the same box as the kind of old work was politics. So that so would critique you, of, yeah. Would you, so this is maybe stretching the point a little bit now that we've got you on, I'm curious. Um, would you say then, I mean, would this be, would it be legitimate to say then that when the new left kind of begins to attack um, productivism and what they take to be the work ethic, mm -hmm. um, what they're partly kind of, it's partly kind of a flanking attack on the kind of class compact made by the large organized labor movement and the communist and socialist parties who built themselves into the welfare state, which meant kind of, you know, engaging in um, coordinated wage, you know, kind of wage agreements. And also they committed to kind of ensuring that productivity was ahead of wage, you know, kept ahead of wages all the time. So it's kind of an, it's part of that critique, right? Absolutely. And that's why it's also a kind of critique of the welfare state. So that's it. I mean, that's why I think it is, one of the most interesting bits of political and social theory and and politics that comes out of the new left, because it still tries to kind of hold on and really claim for itself the mantle of true emancipation um, and to hold on to, you know, the left's tradition of thinking about freedom as its core principle value. But it is, as you say, initially an attack then on the left for the national level social compact that um, explains both where people get their income, namely their willingness to contribute and via the kind of um, the, the welfare state. Um, so, and so it implicitly acknowledges that even the in-kind benefits of the welfare state, which seem to be work, not conditional on work, are somehow premised on the background classic compact that grounds the the welfare state which is basically unions and socialists and left-wing parties delivering workers 
to the workplace to engage in a certain amount of production in exchange for wages and benefits sort of keeping pace with productivity, um, which is why it's all rooted in a productivity agreement. So um, that it's the kind of so that, breaking up of that that yeah. is expressed in the first iteration of the kind of critique of work anti-work politics. That's I think that's fair. Yeah, I know. I know. Alex, um, Alex H wanted to come in here. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it absolutely is a reflection of that within the context of the left. But I guess its appeal not just in the you know post war post 1960s new left but specifically today in the 20 2000s 2010s especially seems to be a sort of you know an ideological reflection of the fact that production uh is either not visible or only visible in the form of bullshit jobs so it's very easy to sort of dispense with right so it, it, it it's yeah, a reflection this is the point you make in the piece isn't yeah, it alex yeah. like it's connected to yeah. globalization uh, I just wanted to add, though, like in terms of its appeal, though, you know, I and this builds on the point that I made before, you know, I was quite blindsided by some of these um, debates because, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the left seemed to have abandoned, like I say, any um, commitment to um, dramatic, ambitious, systemic transformation. And then suddenly, you know, this came out of nowhere. Um, the kind of commitment to the, you know, kind of the almost a fetishization of technological change. Um, Again, kind of a celebration of the force of the tremendous potential of the forces of production and their Mm -hmm. expansion and a vision of superabundance. And I remember being very, um, you know, like I say, it was, it took, you know, because I felt like I, you know, I was one of, you know, kind of me and a few others were the few kind of people I'd ever met on the left who had, who shared those similar ideas. And then suddenly out of nowhere, you had this explosion of these similar kinds of um, ideas. And it only developed in time that I kind of worked out my um, differences with these people who had initially seemed like they were very close um, yep. to where to where I came from. So no, this takes yeah. us to a kind of a connecting question then. So we want to, yeah. so, you know, we talked about end of whether it's the end of history they emerging or the end of the end of history. Um, we also, you know, what is the kind of political packaging that comes with it? And I guess that's, you know, segues into the question of why is it popular now specifically? Yeah, it's a good question. So I should say that, um, this is one thing that I really like about Cernicek and Williams' version, Inventing the Future, is precisely the bits that surprised you and that they are what's new because they point out that they are presenting their vision of a future of synthetic freedom, as they call it, which is a universal basic income, but also extensive automation as part of their critique of the left itself. So the first chapter of their book is a critique of left folk politics, which is everything we'd come to know from the 90s and early 2000s. You know, random anti-globalization protesters kind of traipsing across the world. But, you know, as you say, digging wells in Africa, localism, diversity, hybridity, you know, um, suspicion about the future. I mean, it's an endless series, concatenation of kind of identities and little minor acts of resistance whose only unifying thought is you know, a retreat from large-scale mass politics and a retreat from the future and from many of the conventional things that used to draw people to left-wing politics, including some vision of a of a abundant and emancipated future. So um, they take the stuff that I was talking about before 
um, that I think originates in the kind of new left era, but they do alter it. And I think that part of their appeal does lie. That's, that's the end of the end of history moment within the critique of work politics. And it is, I think, a response to the fact that especially post 2008, there is a recognition that there is an opening for new left-wing thinking. That And that left-wing thinking has to be about the economy. Mm. It has to be, in, and that the economy isn't just a question about kind of growth and jobs. Yeah. Uh, and I was myself a kind of, not a fully automated luxury communist, but I couldn't see anything particularly wrong with the post-work view. I thought, yeah. yeah, this is what the left is for. And it always has been because- you know, horrible industrial jobs were also shitty jobs too, although they were necessary in a certain way. And so yeah. it seemed to me that they had kind of cracked open and renewed and made present for a new generation where you couldn't just red, be, red bait people away from these ideas. I think they um, made that available. I, yeah. yeah. No, I think I, I remember this when the book came out 20, yeah, I think it was 2015. Um, certainly like being quite it was quite an exciting, interesting book, right? I mean, the the boldness, the excitement, the kind of bright red cover with uh, all of the the kind of the slogans on it. I think, though, in retrospect, it was probably a lot more appealing um, before Brexit than it is now. I mean, you know, don't want to reduce everything down to Brexit, but certainly the, I think the, but, you know, but there were things to reduce. Not uh, sure I follow that one, George. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, because I guess in, in retrospect, it is a bit clearer what the, like, what's missing from this, um, yeah. from this vision. And, you know, at the, t at the time, it, you know, probably should have been clearer. And I'm sure many people pointed it out. But, you know, it becomes very clear that it is meaningful. Labour is the working class. You have all of this, all of these um, proposals put forward. And, you know, they all seem like, oh, do you want some money? Yes. Do you want to have all the stuff you don't want to do automated? Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, yeah. Obviously, the questions of like yeah. of political power, of what it would mean to have a free association of of producers, all of this sort of stuff is, um, you know, is is not I mean, they're not disingenuous in in like presenting the history of of socialism as not including this. But certainly it's you know, it, it serves their purposes to set to yeah. to say, well, actually, um, we want to trace a lineage which is trying to emancipate us from work rather than to to claim it, to organize it, to control yeah. it, make it meaningful. And I think, I mean, and I, you know, I do think it is connected. So um, you make the point, Alex, in the piece that globalization is a precondition for the popularity of post-work socialism. So you have a new division of labor in whereby there is simply less, um, well, there is less kind of necessary work that happens in yeah. industrialized countries or the, um, you know, or the West at least, but also that it's simply less visible. It's less meaningful and important because, you know, there aren't kind of distributional struggles between capital and, capital and labor the way they were in the past. And so I think there is, you know, George is a bit maybe, um, you know, George is being a bit shy. I think the connection to Brexit is real because that was, it turned out, kind of the problem on the left was the unwillingness to account for the political agency of the working class in during the Brexit crisis. Um so I want to talk, yeah. I want to move on to the next point about sure. um, getting on to the actual core of the argument um, and the kind of the uh, the flip that you do on the post-work socialists. But is there anything else to mention as you think is why post-work socialism has become popular now specifically? I think that I can only, I, I, th I think there's more to say, but I think it will be easier to understand it 
if I go through the argument of the piece first, because I think the purpose okay. of the piece is to show some of the internal contradictions of the view. And once they come to view, I think they'll kind of seem obvious. And once it seems obvious, then there's a political question to ask about why yeah. why yeah. was it possible yeah. for so many people to imagine you could you could think of a political economy this way. Yeah. Um, so maybe well, we should makes, do the art. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And that in fact follows the structure of the piece as well. So um, as I as I understand it, the main case you make against post-work socialism is that it fails in its own terms, right? Because it yeah. presupposes socially organized necessary labor, the thing that it claims to be freeing us from at the same time. Yeah. And that it but it doesn't it presupposes it, but doesn't actually um make clear the fact that it presupposes this. So could you talk us a bit through this? Yeah. So so here's how how that goes. So I had made one thing just by way of context is that I'm going to part of this discussion is about a universal basic income, but there are like 10,000 arguments for universal basic income. So I'm talking about the role that it plays within this wider post-work socialist vision. So what happened was I'd written one article with the co-author Lucas Stanchek against another left-wing argument for universal basic income, which was um, – the argument, well, we should be proposing and trying to implement a UBI here and now because it can serve as like a stepping stone to emancipatory politics because it can be a you know a universal strike fund or increase worker bargaining power, things like that. And we just tried to show that that presupposes the politics it wants to generate. You could because a truly a left wing version of the UBI could only be implemented if you already have a mass democratic organization of workers with their own party who can expropriate the capital and impose the discipline on on capitalists. So it yeah. can't be a stepping stone because it presupposes politics. But then people have said to us, fine, that's true. But there's really this other line of argument, which is not that it's a stepping stone, but we should create a vision for the left of what the left's really for. That's a really independent political vision from just full employment Democratic Party or labor welfare statism. And that's the appeal of this. And I think it's worth noting the appeal of post-work socialism. So they say, no, the point is we're going to paint a picture. We're going to develop this vision because that will then help motivate or help ground the attempt to organize workers for the politics that you say is necessary. And I thought that's a good argument on its own terms. And it's true. I think Whatever else one thinks, it's got to be true that the left has to have its own political independent, sorry, its own independent political vision that it presents and articulates. And so here the argument was the one that we, we started the show with, which is, okay, so the left's for freedom and it's for freedom in the sense that it wants to emancipate people from being forced to work and to provide them with a new freedom instead, which is the freedom of free time to live your life as you please. And so it's appealing, not just in the negative sense, but in the positive sense, it's not just, oh, we don't have to do shitty bullshit jobs, but it's now we have all this free time uh, to do what we like. Truly that's, you know, that is the left-wing paradise of kind of flourishing humanity. And they say the way to do this is the one, I mean, you know, there's different versions of it, but it's basically give everybody a universal basic income that isn't conditional on working and um, attack the work ethic. 
And the reason they have to go together, and it's the critique of the work ethic that's that's an integral part of the post-work vision that's different from other arguments for a universal basic income, because they say, even if everyone could meet their basic needs without having to work by just using the UBI, if we were a kind of society with any kind of work ethic that put any pressure on people to be productive and develop their talents and contribute, then the social pressure would still be too much. And we would still be forced to use our free time unfreely, in a sense. We wouldn't really be free to just explore ourselves and solve our, you know, face the uh, the basic questions of existence, you know, on our own terms. And so I actually found this pretty compelling view. It, 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 but the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to me to, to hit this contradiction, which Phil just pointed to, which is that for a UBI to be emancipatory, it has to be that you can use the income to buy all the basic goods that you need to survive, right? It can't actually emancipate people if you can't use it to buy stuff. But that means that there have to be goods available to buy with your UBI in this post-work socialist world, and not just any goods. It has to be all the basic goods, right? It can't be like yachts, watches and tennis balls. It's got to be food, clothing, housing, whatever it is that counts in that pool, medical care. So that means that not only goods, but certain goods, and it can't be just today. It's you know every week, every month. There also has to be production of the raw materials and in the industry so that those goods are available in the future. So what it means is that for the universal basic income to function as the post-work theorists say, there have to be all these goods available. For those goods to be available, a whole bunch of production already has to be taken place, which means the UBI can't emancipate us from work in the way that the post-work socialists say, because it means that um, somebody somewhere has to be doing work to produce the goods that you're buying. And if they didn't do that work, then your UBI would not be even a way of surviving because you couldn't use it to buy stuff. So you would then be forced to work. So either a whole bunch of people are doing work as a necessary condition for everyone enjoying and being able to use their UBI not to work, or the UBI is useless, in which case you're forced to work. So you could say it's it might be true that a universal basic income work is like individually unconditional, but it is collectively conditional. For everyone to be able yeah. to use their UBI, it's conditional on some group of people doing necessary work somewhere and on society organizing that work to make sure it's getting done in the basic goods sectors. It's uh, it's it's very compellingly made in the in the piece, and you've um, you've summarized it well there. Um, so um, I think that I mean I I obviously find that um, compelling as well. Isn't the argument though? I mean, it's often associated that UBI argument, the more radical proponents of it particularly in its kind of socialist form, not capitalist form, uh, with with an argument for universal basic services. So th the idea is that not just that UBI, the income that you receive unconditionally, would be need to buy everything, not just, you know, yachts, but also healthcare, um, but that the healthcare would already be provided. Now, I, I, I mean, I, I, I totally see your point about the fact that they don't actually talk about who's actually doing the healthcare, um, yep. you know, how there that work is being divided up, but it's, but I think isn't, I mean, I'm, I'm not so familiar with the arguments. So I'm wanting to some clarification on it, uh, whether yep. they don't, they don't, you know, they acknowledge at the very least that there would be this necessary labor done because there'd be universal basic services as well as universal basic income. 
So the point's just about how they present the freedom that people are supposed to enjoy. So the presentation of this as post-work is presented as if we can give everyone a universal basic income and all their in-kind benefits, right? Because they do say, and Cernicek and Williams, I think are the clearest and the best in just laying this out, saying the left-wing case is that in a post, in a you know, in this socialist utopia, the universal basic income is for buying some things, but it's surrounded by a welfare state where you have free public education, free health care, various in-kind benefits, right? But then how are we supposed to think about the freedoms? This is, the point is this is all a way of emancipating people from necessity, right? And so they, if, it, if that's the case, then it's emancipating people from necessity, they say, in the sense of it's not necessary that anyone work because everyone gets everything they need which is the basic income plus all those in-kind services without having to work. But the services point only makes vivid the problem, which is those goods are only available to people if someone's doing that work, right? I mean, healthcare is a great example. You can't provide people with healthcare if there are no doctors, nurses, and everybody else involved in the complex activity of providing healthcare. So it means one way of putting it is the freedom is presented as if we give everybody these benefits, not conditional on them working, and then we remain indifferent about what they do with their freedom. But okay, we, so... but they can't be. We can't be indifferent for them to be free in that way, right? It must be the case that actually huge amounts of people are doing some labor in the basic sectors, however that's defined. So right? why why not? So why not automate it away then? Good. So the automation, the automation question is usually one that's brought up. And I think that the problem with it is that um, I think automation is a very valuable partial solution to the problem of how to organize labor in a future free society. But it isn't the answer. Um, and I think it's not the answer for a number of different reasons. One is there are some kinds of work that can't be automated. Uh, and uh, like education and healthcare. Um, so, so just to jump in, doctors. Th those yeah. are the types of jobs. I mean, often in these discussions, that people say that they would be happy to do after the revolution. There's even a bit of a meme about this, right? If you, you can even search, you know, what what will be your job after the revolution? And some people obviously have things like basket weaving and, uh, or you know, organic agriculture or teaching theory, which seems to be the stupidest of the lot because it. Uh, because after the revolution, you won't need revolutionary theory. But anyway, that's that's a whole other. I don't think, uh, I don't think, I don't think that's the theory they mean, Alex. But well, it is very whatever. Um, but I, the point is more that things like caring, uh, all the caring professions, which can't be automated, they're all happy to do, right? I think that seems to be um, very much within the discussion. But yep. there's a whole other element of not, stuff that, but... that that can't be. Um... Yeah. So I think yeah, there's just so a, yeah, that's not an answer. I think the problem is that's simply not an answer. So it, it's not an answer to say, oh, well, but enough people in the right places will be happy to do all of these necessary activities. I don't think that, that that's not an answer given how they describe this post-work socialist utopia and for a number of reasons. First of all, if they've been successful in their cultural warfare against the work ethic, we have to remember that the alternative source of, of work effort, which is our public culture is precisely the thing that they've attacked, right? So if you're removing any economic compulsion, which is in principle, I think a very worthy thing to do, then you have to argue, you have to ask yourself, why would enough people be willing to do the particular things that have to be done 
if they're not economically compelled? And the only answer would have to be because of a public commitment to doing it, a work ethic. There would have to be a socialist work ethic. But they've attacked that idea. The whole point of post-work socialism is to say, we're going to remove all social sanction from that. So why that? Why would then people suddenly spontaneously not just be willing to do what they happen to want to do that day or happen to commit maybe for a little bit of time to doing it, but commit themselves to doing what's necessary? And so the, 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 the point is that the problem of necessary labor is, I think, prior to the question of the distribution of the goods that labor produces, or at least the the means by which we distribute what labor is produced has to be consistent with how we organize production. And the 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 claim that, uh, oh, people will be happy to do these things, I think is just not plausible. And it's okay, not possible one, for multiple, okay, there's like a lot of reasons. One is okay, so that's one point though. the cultural yeah, so pressure. They follow, so they, you know, they don't have a work ethic to fall back on yeah. because they've explicitly yeah. cast against right. that. Um, I have the a sidebar yeah, on socialist yeah. work ethic. Maybe we'll come back to it. But yeah. so, okay, but you can still, and even notwithstanding the things that some things can't be automated, right. I still, you know, you could, the post-work socialist could still say, okay, fine, but there are so many things that could be automated, uh -huh. yeah. um, you know, that it would, that it's still kind of, you know, it's still kind of a, a, a horn of plenty. It's still kind right. of the cornucopia. And, and goods, let me just tack something on to that. Which doesn't eliminate, sure. which, you know, kind of still yeah. would be their comeback, presumably, right? And, and let me just tack on something yeah, to that, on. which is that um, they presumably, that presumably they also think that there'd be whole swathes of the economy which would no longer exist. And so there'd be work that doesn't yeah. need to be done. Not just things like marketing and, you know, your classic bullshit jobs, but even stuff that is actually produced in China, but it's a bunch of trinkets, which, you know, in a kind of post-consumer society, you wouldn't be producing all those things. Yeah. So uh, I think here's where there's a the further problem. So the problem of necessary labor, as is how I put it, is not just a question of how many things can machines do versus human beings, and to the degree that human beings have to do it, where are they going to come from? That's that's one problem. Um, and I've said that they've kind of undermined any reason to think people will do it. But it's also a political question, right? It requires a collective political determination of need and a collective institutional arrangement that guarantees that labor will go to the places where labor needs to be done. So it's a political problem about how we define what needs are and then guarantee that the enough labor goes to the right kinds of places. And if all you're proposing to people is we'll have a UBI and we'll critique the work ethic and we'll just leave it up to individual choices, there's no reason to think that that political problem has even been recognized, let alone been giving some convincing institutional solution. And where I think that comes out most clearly is in the automation point itself, which is you can't automate automation. So they present the point as if like anytime someone has a preference, we'll just bring, we'll introduce a machine to meet that need. But that that is a strange to me, that's a strangely neoliberal or market-based conception of need. The whole idea, I think, in socialism is that we can distinguish needs from other kinds of desires. And the only thing we'll ever be concerned to try to ensure that people do is the labor necessary to meet people's needs. And so you can't 
pre present automation it needs themselves as, needs needs themselves um, change indeed expand, as you indeed so this is this is yet a further problem which I you know I haven't gotten to with their argument but one is the work ethic problem another is you can't automate automation you need to give a political account of the process by which we're going to decide what the needs are that help us identify what counts as necessary labor and then which things we might want to automate. So again, I'm not saying that automation wouldn't play a huge role, but it's subsidiary and it is downstream from having first resolved the political question about how we decide what counts as needs. Because if we have no process, then actually automation could surely never solve the problem because human desires will always outpace our current productive capacities. We will be, it's actually their view as I think of you of permanent scarcity yeah. rather than abundance yeah, until they have in fact given us an account of how we identify and distinguish a need from preferences. And that's a political question. It's not a question of our technical capacities. I and then say, I, I want to say something about the needs at some point, the expansion of needs thing, but yeah, we should say on this point. Yeah, no, I mean, I was, you know, this thought came to me listening to you speak about it, that there seems to be a, an inherent tendency towards a certain primitivism, if that's not too strong a way to put it within this, because there'd be a necessary reduction of what is necessary labor of what is and what needs are, um, because they can't account for, you know, a vision in which there are expanded needs, expanded desires, even and that that and that civilization, right. civilizational progress would in fact be very much the creation and resolution of those new needs. So I, I, this is why I like, again, the, the reason why I kind of like Cernicek and Williams is because they're unwilling to give up on their futurism and their sense of abundance, because yeah. one strand of post-workism does precisely that. It tends to be ecological or anarchist and localist, um, and sometimes those things go together, but it's basically... Well, we can get post-work by just scaling down our needs. Our needs are artificially inflated by capitalism. That's why we work so much. That's Productivism is just the other side of our the artificial inflation of needs. In fact, the actual work that needs to be done is now very minimal because we have, very, we have a sort of fixed set of needs because needs are just what it takes to survive. And we can solve the climate crisis too. We just downshift. And um, the the what you call primitivist view is is actually you know there and there are kind of interesting weird versions of this like Murray Bookchin had this kind of essay on towards a liberation technology which is a kind of high technology localism uh uh which you know it's sort of the replicator in every house kind of idea um and so but that one's that one allows for expanding needs and also redefining needs away from the consumption of material goods. That's another move sometimes people make, which is we just would have fewer needs for material goods. But those are just must, what, what they all have in common, I think, is a, a stagnant view of humanity. So it really is not a, a way of getting us out of the artificial inflation of human needs because the development of human needs is as old as humanity and the development of productive powers. So I think in truth, the only way you could sustain a community based on a fixed and limited set of needs is if they never developed their own abilities because our needs expand as we develop our abilities. So it would be a stagnant society. So I wanted to talk a bit more about work ethic. I mean, there's a few points actually to make. Um, you touch in the article about 
how post-work socialism is associated with a specific sort of a normative view of work. And I wondered if you could expand a bit on this. And then I also wanted to come back on the idea of a socialist work ethic, because I think this cuts to the heart of the um, whatever yeah. appeal post-work socialism has. But tell us, first of all, what is the kind of the normative view of work that is presupposed by the post-work socialists? Yeah. So I think that... I mean, I'm I'm trying to impose clarity on a set of writings that aren't that are that I think are sometimes say more than one thing and so contradict themselves. So I'm sure I'll say something or even wrote something, and then people point to passages in post work theory where they didn't say it. But that's because I I think that there's just contradictions uh, in what they say. So, um, but I nonetheless I do think the kind of core thought of the post work view as it stands, is that work is unfree because it's necessary. And so the way to become free is, or increase freedom, is just to reduce work. And that's the driving thought, the driving normative thought, as it were. If we're committed to human freedom, human freedom is when we're not forced to do anything. Um, uh, but since work is necessary, work is just something we're forced to do. And so... We should just minimize it. And the irony of that is I think, you know, as any good Marxists should know, work is not merely a labor process. It's a social process. The reason it just looks like sheer necessity is that the social element of work is determined externally for people who do it by the valorization process, right? It's determined the social necessity of work is something that looks like just given to everybody. Because on the one hand, there isn't really an adequate political process for determining needs and what people work for. And on the other hand, the basic thing that determines whether any work is necessary is not any particular human need, but the need to you know, increase surplus value, which is not itself a purpose that anybody could that make sense for anyone to have. It's not the point of any labor. So um, it the, the normative core of post-workism, I think... Um, makes a mistake at both ends. It naturalizes what is a socially contingent feature of work. And then on the other hand, I think it makes a mistake in thinking that because it is necessary for us to do work, it is therefore unfree. But I think that's a mistake too. Just because something is necessary doesn't make it unfree. If you yeah, organize so this, work- This is a really yeah, good sorry. point that you made about the, um, you know, the meaning- and from what you're saying, you know, there is this I, there is kind of a liberal notion of freedom at the core of post-work socialism, right? Yeah. It's the idea of the absence of coercion. Um, and right. that is the only kind of meaning, you know, meaningful idea of freedom. Whereas you make the case that freedom in your piece, you make the case that freedom must also involve taking responsibility for necessity. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to say something without making it sound too abstract and weird. But the but the point I wanted to say is that uniquely, human beings uh, um, are always t uh, choosing how to organize their labor. So it's true that work is necessary, but um, it's only necessary in the sense that to go on living the lives that we have reason to value, some work has to be done. But it's also indeterminate. So it's indeterminate what form work has to take, which means whenever any work is done, in fact, human beings are choosing the conditions and relationships under which they do that work and the particular needs for which they do that labor. And 
So it's really necessary for human beings to decide how we want to organize that labor to do it. So far, we've never really done that in a fully conscious and democratic way. But I think the the way to do what we're already doing, which is work under some set of social work under some social choice about what to produce and for whom and who's to do that producing. The only way to do that in the most you know natural way or the way true to what we're doing is to take responsibility for that choice, right? So um, is to, to, to make public decisions about what we think it is important enough for everybody to contribute their time and effort to. And in making that choice public through a, some democratic process, we then take responsibility for it. That's the real problem is right now, nobody is really responsible for, on the one hand, deciding what counts as a need. And on the other hand, who's going to do the labor and under what conditions? We, in, in sort of weird partial ways, we've taken that responsibility. The welfare state at its best, I suppose, was a public decision about what are basic needs, right? Independent of, of the market. But it wasn't the wholesale. Uh, it, it, it was also buttressing sort of capitalism. It was a way of rationalizing capitalist production rather than really making that decision uh, democratically, right? So people think you can't make work free because it's, it's just imposed on us, but it isn't just imposed. It's indeterminate how we're going to do that. And so to recognize that we're always already making that choice just means taking responsibility for it and and doing it in a, in a collective and, and democratic way. And then I think when we do that, that means everybody has a reason to do their share. Right. When work is organized properly and fairly, then everybody has a reason to do their share. And there would be a work ethic that is con work ethic that's consistent with human freedom. Namely, we've all made a choice about what counts as necessary labor. Everybody now has a reason to do their share. Yeah. So, I mean, that gets to this point as well, which you kind of bring back about the in um, the kind of the Marxian classical vision of um Right. Labor, you know, labor is no longer is something which is freely chosen. Um, right. It becomes uh, life's prime want, as Marx puts it. And I think that right. point is well made. Um, but I wanted to talk a bit. So a bit more about, you know, this kind of idea of a work ethic. So I think that, you know, there's there's a contemporary manifestation of the work of a work ethic, right. um, which has kind of cultural purchase. And I think will probably be familiar to our listeners which is the kind of, you know, the because it's been lampooned so frequently on social media as well, but is a genuine, you know, I mean, it's a genuine thing. I think anyone who has been around the PMC would recognize it, which is this kind of idea like, you know, if you get up at 5 a.m. and drink a kale smoothie and do 10,000 crunches before you meditate for 10 minutes and then, you know, send a few emails and then you have this meeting and then, and if you do that enough, you know, you'll eventually become as rich as Elon Musk. Um, and, you know, then see the kind of, you know, the constant kind of um, articles about what CEOs do, you know, how many ice baths they take and all of this stuff. So, you know, there's that yeah. kind of neo-Protestant work ethic, which is very um, culturally embedded at the moment. I think it's the, is, rise you know, and, if, the rise and grind mindset, which you may or may not you, have. And then you have a kind of, um, and then you have the, the you know, the social, what, you know, if you, when you say socialist work ethic, what immediately comes to my mind, I mean, I, I imagine this isn't what you mean. I mean, I know this isn't what you mean, but this is what comes to my mind. So I'm curious to know how you kind of respond to it. But if you say socialist work ethic, what comes to my mind is kind of, you know, um, the Stakhanovites, right. you know, so the kind right. of the, um, the heroic kind of overachievers of Soviet industrialization. 
So the idea of a work ethic, which is linked to expanding the forces of production in an underdeveloped context. Exactly. You know, and that and that seems to me to you know that is not not only is it unappealing given you know the Soviet context in a very basic way, but it's also redundant because you know whatever confronts us in industrialized countries, it is it doesn't seem to me that enormous expansion of the forces of production is kind of you know what is uh, necessary to resolve our problems. Exactly. No, I, so that's, that's a good point. I mean, as a, as a small sidebar to that, it's possible that the industrialized North owes it to the rest of the world to do a bit of Stakhanovite use, you know, commitment to industrializing the global South. So I don't think- Are uh, you going to start the other Alex off now, Alex? In, uh, in the sense that like, uh, you know, they, they should enjoy abundance too. And that in the short term- I mean, it, 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 you know, after the revolution, as it were, in the in the short term, would mean a lot of the global north would actually owe, I think, a fair amount of labor hours to uh, assisting the south in, in industrializing. So, I, I don't think it would require creepy Stakhanovite sort of, you know, servility. But to the degree that it's still considerably underdeveloped, um, and and um, you know, if Branko Milanovic was right went on your show that the real achievement of uh, of the 20th century was the industrialization of China but that that took communism that's a disturbing thought you know uh if you know what would it take to industrialize Africa I don't know probably would take a huge amount of human labor I don't think the machines are just a solution to that um but that's a sidebar because obviously we're talking about what does it look like uh what 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 are the possibilities for freedom now and the way I so see what, so what might yeah. you know you're developing an idea of a socialist work ethic in yeah. contradistinction to right. the these post-work people who are trying to gouge it out and you see it as right. a kind of as an ideological imposition yeah. so what might right. you know if it, if it's not about kind if it's not stakhanovite what might it mean in right. a way that's consistent with freedom good yeah so that's i mean so, so they say that the post-work Socialists will sometimes say that the work ethic is just an ideological imposition to get workers to consent to their own subjection. And in the first world, that's even more absurd because you can't even add to it the meaning it once had, which was, as you say, industrialization of an underdeveloped country. At least you could say of the Stakhanovite thing, they needed to industrialize. At least you got that. Whereas here in the North now, it's just like bullshit jobs. It's like, what's the what's the point of this? We can just end it. Um, we just have lots of free time. And um, uh, I mean, that's, I think, a mistake. No, I don't think it's a mistake. It is a mistake. Um, because I think the freedom that they want can only be achieved if everybody shares the necessary labor. That's the first thing. So if there is some class of work that has to be done, that is in some way routine, unattractive, maybe some of it might be dangerous. Um, then the thing about that work is it's got to be done for everybody to have enough free time, which means for nobody you have to spend much of their lives doing it. Then everybody has to do a little bit. And the question is, why would everybody do a little bit? Well, one reason would be if we're not going to force them to do it, the way to make it consistent with freedom is to have a work ethic, namely a public commitment to everybody doing their share 
to honoring and celebrating and, and respecting and admiring people who do that. And for those forms of social pressure on each other to do it. That is just what a work ethic is. It is a it is a cultural, it's an institution. It's not just like attitudes. The attitudes express an institution that works through, you know, cultural forms. Like, you know, we we shame people or we ostracize people who don't do their share because they're just increasing the burden for the rest of us. But if everybody does their share, then everybody has will have a lot of free time and nobody will be committed to doing this all of their life. So, so this goes that's the to first the, element of a socialist yeah. work ethic. Yeah. Okay. Well, this goes to the question of shared labor socialism, which we'll come back to. But just right. quickly, how do you read that kind of the um the rise and grind kind of work ethic? Right. Um, which seem, you know, which is so, I mean, so the reason I raise it, because I know it's lampooned, but I see it among my students, particularly, you know, and very strikingly among the ones that are ambitious and, you know, that might come from working class or immigrant or lower middle class communities. And, you know, they do, it does appeal to them, this idea of kind of, of um, achievement, of self-advancement. And it seems to me there is, you know, so at the same time as it's completely ridiculous, there is, um, you know, there is kind of an aspirational drive that is that totally. it captures onto. So this is the other part of the socialist work ethic is that I think it would not just be something that explains and that relates to how people ought to relate to their share of necessary labor. I think the second part would be because it would be natural in a free society to celebrate and respect and admire people who use their free time. Um to achieve things. We would celebrate human achievement. And I think, you know, real human achievements that involve developing some human ability and using it to create something uh, of interest and value to society takes, among other things, a degree of discipline. So, you know, anything worth, in that sense, it's work in that it's like something you devote yourself to. So the person who figures out how to um, come up with a great new transportation system for a city or who invents a world changing drug or who figures out a really, you know, uh, a or the group of people jug. drug. Oh, drug. Right. So like so, a, like a life changing, life changing, life changing drug, you know, something to cure disease, some important human disease or who figures out um, who comes up with great new ways to experience music, you know, that stuff, that, uh, that kind of thing. Those are Sorry, achievements to, we would celebrate. To... Just to interrupt, Alex, there is a, yeah. a world-changing jug. I don't know if you've ever used one of these. It looks like a fish, and when you pour it, it glugs. That would be a world, a world-changing world jug changing. to the extent that you could possibly have one. Because it's just a receptacle you know, for pouring liquid. I, I expected a bad saying. joke, but I thought this bad joke was going to go in a different direction, George. Yeah, I, but I'll leave it. To no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. believe it. The, the imagination of, of listening. I'm going <laughs> to leave it at that, George. Leave it to your imagination. Okay, that's the end of this episode. If you've enjoyed it, why not drop BungaCast a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts? And make sure you hit subscribe if you don't subscribe already. The second part of this episode is available for patrons only at patreon.com slash BungaCast. In the episode, we discuss what's behind so-called bullshit jobs in the global north and the absence of jobs in the global south, whether shared labor socialism means communal living, and whether there'll be part-time voluntary mining after the revolution, or if we'll need some other way to organize production. Again, that's at patreon.com slash bungacast. Subscribers for $5 a month get access to, at the very least, 
two original paywalled episodes a month, which include our in-depth analyses of current affairs, bonus content, and our replies to listeners' questions and criticisms. Hope to see you there.